Thanks for joining us for this episode of 13. We want to start by thanking our new patrons, Megan Gregg, Sierra Hainsworth, Holly Kulsher, Greg Gilbert, Jenna Friend, Jordan Trent, and Craig Greener. We couldn't do this without you. Patrons get access to a Patreon-exclusive Discord where you can chat with us about the show or whatever else is on your mind. Bloopers, behind-the-scenes audio, and weekly updates on the show. Different tiers get stickers, t-shirts, and coffee mugs, too. Sign up to support the show at patreon.com forward slash 13pod. We want to take a moment to tell you about The Lucky Die. The Lucky Die is an actual play D&D podcast that utilizes the drama inherent in the rule set of the game to tell a dark and dramatic improvised tale. The show focuses on four flawed characters and the friends that they make along the way as they try to stop the apocalypse and make right the wrongs in their own lives. It's edited for audio quality with in-house scoring. It's a fun ride. You're going to enjoy it. Stick around for a trailer from The Lucky Die at the end of the show and look for a link in the show notes. Speaking of in-house original scoring, our very own in-house composer Caleb Ritchie made an appearance on a podcast called How I Make Music. Caleb talks about music and scoring for 13, in particular the Barrier Islands episode back in our first year. Go give it a listen at Where I Make Music, wherever you listen to podcasts. It's actually been a while since we've been on another podcast, and we know that a lot of our listeners are also creators, so if you want us to come on and voice a character on your show, or talk about something 13 related, or not related for that matter, look for our email in the show notes, or get in touch with us on social media. Working with other creators is one of the things that makes this so much fun. Speaking of working with other creators, you know Shelby Scott from too many 13 episodes to count at this point. And this is just your reminder that Shelby's show, Scare You to Sleep, is back on all podcast platforms. If you lost touch with Scare You to Sleep when she was Spotify exclusive, well, she's back to wherever you were listening before, and with tons of new content that you missed while you were gone. If you're not already a listener to Scare You to Sleep, look for a link in the show notes, subscribe to the podcast, you're going to enjoy it, I promise you won't regret it. Today's episode is Lost Ladies, written by Lisa Short. Lisa is online at lisashort.com, and she's on social media on Facebook and Twitter. Look for links in the show notes. We've got a great show for you this month, and we're excited to get started. But first, let's talk about Athletic Greens. As you all know, I started taking Athletic Greens last month. I started taking Athletic Greens because I was looking for more energy in my life. I've been trying to get over that COVID funk and eat healthier and just live a better lifestyle. I've been using Athletic Greens for about five weeks now, and my energy level is exactly where I need it to be. Because if I'm being honest, I haven't been sleeping that well. I've been having these dreams. The best part is that the energy coming from Athletic Greens AG1 formula comes from 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole-source superfoods, and probiotics, not from sugary energy drinks that keep you jittery and will follow up with a crash. And I can't afford to crash right now. These dreams. If he catches me. It's simple and easy. I take it in the morning before breakfast for maximum absorption. They even have travel packs to take with you on the go. Just one scoop and a glass of water while I look out at the rising sun, knowing that I'm safe for now. Athletic Greens supports mental clarity and alertness, and it costs less than $3 a day. That's cheaper than your cold brew habit. And they have over 7,000 five-star reviews. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the cold and flu season. Just one scoop in a cup of water daily, and that's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. 
To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash 13. That's all spelled out, not the number. Athleticgreens.com forward slash 13 to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And now, on with the show. Megan was peering at me over the tortoiseshell rim of her glasses. So, what did you say you were down here for again? We sat in her living room. Her house was little, old and shabby, but still, a thousand times better than her family's trailer had ever been. I'd braced myself going inside, and then I'd been ashamed, because, of course, There weren't any month-old diapers stuffed under the furniture. The house smelled like cinnamon and baked chicken, not rotted food and backed-up toilets. Megan wasn't her mother any more than I was mine. I spoke up. My company's trying to set up a supply chain deal with a company headquartered in Kansas City. She was staring blankly at me. I went on. They flew a bunch of us down here to demo the equipment we build. Not the actual equipment, but just drawings of it and, you know, simulations. On a computer? I finished meekly. Suddenly, she grinned, a silver incisor gleaming at me as she leaned back into the couch cushions, folding her arms across her chest. I knew it, she said. I always knew you'd end up with some nerd job. The affection in her eyes was real and solid. They'd warmed up, bright blue, now in the sunlight. I'd forgotten that trick her eyes had of catching the light when she was happy. I smiled back and she blinked at me, shaking her head and kept talking. You look just the same, and you sound just the same too. I smiled. I'm pretty sure I look older. I'm a lot closer to 30 now than 17. You and me both, she said. And it was true. She was exactly one month older than I was. Our closeness and age had delighted us when we were kids. Our resemblance to each other even more so. We'd always been within an inch of each other's height, with the same ratty, dishwater blonde hair and skin that tanned easily, unfreckled, brown in the summer. We always said we were like sisters. Neither one of us had any actual sisters. I'd been an only child, and she'd been the only girl in a family of five boys. But both the resemblance 
and the friendship had started to fade by the time we reached high school. The last time I'd spoken to her had been right before our junior year, when we just happened to be in the same line to pick up our textbooks. I'd heard later that she dropped out of school entirely and run off with Joe Peterson. And, speaking of the devil, I asked, where is Joe anyway? She exhaled loudly, then sucked in a deep breath. Joe's in the kitchen. A violently red mop of hair poked around the doorway. The freckled face beneath it split into a broad grin. He straightened up and sauntered out into the living room. You look just the same, he said. I already said that, Megan told him. Megan gave him the same look she'd given me. She talked about him like he wasn't in the room. She told me that Joe's been a paramedic with the county ever since his enlistment ran out. Then, under her breath, she told me that she was so done with the military bullshit. Joe nodded smugly, as if there'd ever been any doubt that he'd turn out well. He had always been like that seemingly filled with an inexplicable assurance that nothing in life was ever that bad, that anything could be worked out right in the end. Maybe that was what Megan had seen in him all those years ago, and still saw in him, judging from the way they sat together now on the couch. Megan got her phone out and was proudly showing me pictures of her sons. They were spending the week at Joe's parents' place, out in the country. She said they'd be back late Saturday night. You're staying through the week, right? She asked. I nodded. Till next Thursday. She was looking at me expectantly. I gave in to the inevitable. I'd love to come over for dinner one night and meet them, I said, to her obvious delight. Joe spoke up. He said we could do dinner any night but Sunday. There was something abrupt about it. I glanced over at him. He was staring at the floor, his fist stuffed between his knees. Megan agreed. Sunday wouldn't work for them. There was an awkward moment in the room. The sun had moved past the window while we had been talking. Megan's eyes had lost their sparkle. They were a dull, muddy blue now in the shadowed room. Finally, she spoke again. They had a funeral to go to. Joe's cousin just lost her son. He passed away two weeks ago. He was only five years old. I told Joe that I was so sorry. He nodded without looking up. I wondered if it would be too much to ask them what happened. And then I did anyway. Megan said it had been in the news. She reached over and patted Joe's clenched fingers. He broke his neck at his own birthday party at one of the pavilions at Lost Ladies Park. Megan gave me a look I couldn't place. You remember Lost Ladies, don't you? For a long moment, I didn't. 
Megan's eyes widened at my blank stare, and her gaze shifted over to her husband. Mine followed, and the sight of his downcast face triggered a very old memory. I said, it was an accident, right? But as soon as the words left my mouth, I felt like an idiot. Megan wasn't angry. She said, I don't know. She explained that the little boy was scared of the woods. He would have never gone into it alone. But somehow, he ended up there. Megan said he got his foot caught on a root and took a bad fall. She took a deep breath. She explained that the examiner who did his autopsy said he'd probably been running, tripped, and hit the ground at a wrong angle. His mother just thought he'd gone a little way past the tree line and didn't start looking for him for a good 15 or 20 minutes. But the doctor said it didn't matter that it'd taken so long, that he'd died right away, and there wasn't anything she could have done. The visit fell flat after that. Joe must have been close to his cousin, or, God forbid, he'd had to deal with the kid's body himself. He was a county paramedic after all. Megan made me promise I'd call her Saturday afternoon and arrange to come by next week. She walked me out to my rental car and gave me a quick hug goodbye. She was still standing on the porch as I backed out of the driveway. Joe came outside and gave a half-hearted wave as I pulled away. I still wasn't sure why I'd decided to rent a hotel room in town instead of the Hilton at the city airport. I had to pay for it out of my own pocket, too. The company, not unreasonably, had expected me to stay at and was definitely only willing to pay for a room where everybody else was staying. But, since I had, I thought I might as well go check in. I had nothing else to do. I barely needed to pay attention to where I was going. I still knew the town all too well. In fact, Megan's house had turned out not to be too far from where my parents used to live. Still lived, as far as I knew. But I didn't want to think about that. I wanted to think about something else. Anything else. He broke his neck at his own birthday party. It wasn't so strange that I'd forgotten about the Lost Ladies. I'd only ever been to the park once, when I was ten years old. Megan and I had gone together. Her parents had sent her to a vacation Bible study camp every summer. My parents had never sent me to any summer camp, and I'd known then that they never would. So, I'd never even bothered asking. But Megan's church had been conducting a recruitment drive that summer. Once my parents had understood that it wouldn't cost them a dime, they'd been happy to ship me off to the Lost Ladies campgrounds with Megan. Joe's family had gone to the same church as Megan, and he'd been at that camp too. He hadn't been Megan's boyfriend yet, but looking back now, I could see that he was interested in her 
even then. Since he hadn't been much for introspection or highbrow discourse, he mostly just hung around us, making provoking remarks and cracking the dumbest jokes possible. The night we were all roasting hot dogs around the camp bonfire was the night he'd decided to mess with us about the Lost Ladies Park. Joe had a grin on his face when he asked me, You know why it's called Lost Ladies? I'd shook my head and tried my best to look uninterested. And then he told me the story of the Lost Ladies that his grandmother had told him. Joe said that a hundred years ago, back during Prohibition, there was a big town picnic, organized by a certain group of women. These women were always trying to have anybody violating the liquor laws thrown into jail, among other things. The sheriff didn't like these ladies. The mayor didn't like them either. But the women threw the picnic anyway. The whole town came out because who wasn't going to go to a picnic, right? Everything seemed fine until the next day when some people started to realize that their sister or their mother or their girlfriend hadn't made it home. All the women who'd organized the picnic were just missing. Joe said that everyone went back into the woods to search, but they never found even a single one of them. Not one. Joe said that's when the people in town started talking. They said that the sheriff and the mayor had been the ones who took care of the women, if you know what I mean. Way back in the woods, made sure nobody got too close to where they'd left them. Apparently, the sheriff and the mayor didn't like all the trouble the women had caused, and the picnic was an opportunity to get rid of them. So Joe said they killed the lost ladies and left them to rot somewhere deep in the woods. As Joe told me the story, as we sat around that campfire, I had looked up past his shoulder and into the darkness of the forest beyond. The singing from the other campers had faded away behind us, the wind had risen, and the murmuring rustle of the leaves rose to a roar. Joe whispered in my ear, every so often some kids are out playing at the park, in the woods, or by the lake, and they're never seen again, not every time. Not most of the time, or even half the time, but it still happens. Joe paused, then said, People say it's the lost ladies, their ghost. The spell Joe had put me under with that story had been broken, and I asked, What people? Who says it's the women's ghost? I told him, only babies believe in ghosts. Joe hadn't cared for that. He said his grandma believed in ghosts, 
And then if I'd seen one, I'd believe in them too. I giggled, causing Joe to fold his arms across his chest. He continued, saying that a lot of people believe in ghosts, and that's why we have funerals. He said, if you don't take care of dead people the right way, their spirit gets angry. And instead of going to heaven like they're supposed to, they hang around and harass the living. I could see that Joe truly believed what he was saying. His eyes were round and dark and serious. He nodded, leaning forward until our noses almost touched. Joe's voice was deep as he said, Every so often, some kid goes deep into the woods to play, and he's okay at first. But as the sun goes down, he thinks he starts seeing things out of the corner of his eye. But when he tries to look at them, they vanish. And every time he looked away again, they got closer and closer. Megan had left me alone with Joe, just long enough to snag a couple hot dogs. As she approached us, she interrupted him with a fuck you. Her fist planted on her hips. I started laughing. Megan dropped the F-bomb at Jesus camp? Joe, swept away by his admiration of Megan, laughed too. A siren from behind me made me jerk upright, slamming onto the brakes. The rental car screeched to a halt in the middle of the intersection, and a red light glared down at me. At least the intersection was empty, thank God. Well, not quite empty. I watched as a cop car pulled up behind me, its light bar strobing. The driver's side door swung open. I reached for my purse. As I dug for my wallet, I hadn't noticed the cop walk up to the car. He tapped on my window. I jumped, then rolled it down. License and registration, please. I finally dug my wallet out of my purse and the rental car registration out of the glove box. I handed him the paperwork and froze, staring up at his face. I knew this cop. He was reading my license. California? Long way from home? He frowned a little, then looked away from my license and down at my face. He was still. I hadn't realized it, but he must have been moving before. At least a little. Because he wasn't anymore. Amber? Amber Delaney? Hi. As much as I'd wished I had more to say, I didn't. Did he really remember me too? Or had he just been reading my name off of my license? He pulled out an electronic pad and tucked my driver's license in the corner of it. Visiting family? I said no, but I regretted it as soon as I said it. I should have just said yes. Who cared if it wasn't true? I told him I was on a business trip in the city. I just thought I'd stop by and see a few old friends, since I was so close. Did you notice you ran a stoplight? Well, not till after I'd already done it. 
I'm really sorry. I'll just give you a warning this time. Try to pay closer attention, alright? I nodded, embarrassed. He passed my license and registration back to me. So where are you heading now? The Red Roof Inn, downtown. That's where I'm staying. I gave him what I hoped was a neutral smile. I was feeling more rattled by the second. Do you remember me? His eyes were serious. I desperately wanted to look away, but I managed not to. Yes, I do remember you. My voice was a little hoarse. You were very nice to me back in the day. Thank you. I sounded ridiculously formal. I didn't know your name, though. Greg, I'm off duty in an hour. I was going to get a drink somewhere if you want to come along. He glanced away, his mouth curling up at the corners. Sure, I said. He suggested the bar at the hotel. I felt my own mouth stretch into a big smile. See you there. The Red Roof Inn. The finest motel in town. Never mind the reek of mildew that permeated the carpets. It did have a tiny bar. I seated myself on one of its rickety stools and ordered a drink, half hoping that Greg wouldn't show. But barely a minute later, the front desk bell chimed. I looked up from my glass of wine, just in time to see Greg enter. He'd shed the uniform in favor of a t-shirt, jeans, and a baseball cap. He looked exactly like what he probably was, a local boy who'd come back home after his enlistment was up, just like Joe and a hundred other men in town. He'd been a rookie cop back then, working the graveyard shift, which I'd known because the only time I'd ever see him was when I was walking home from work. I'd always signed up for as many closing shifts as I could, both because it paid more and because being at home wasn't pleasant. It was worst when my parents returned after a night of drinking. I hadn't had a car, so on the nights I'd closed, I'd walk alone for the two miles of deserted, unlit streets between the diner and my family's trailer. He hadn't driven past every night I'd walked home, but he had done it enough that I'd started to suspect he was looking out for me. He'd always ask me if I was alright, and he sounded like he cared about the answer, which was more than any other adult had done, at school, at work, certainly at home. He smiled at me now as he approached, and my stomach twisted a little. Not quite like all the other local boys. That wry, funny grin was different. That and the kindness that had never seemed to have any strings attached. And the fact that he'd been barely a handful of years older than me. I'd had a massive crush on him my whole senior year in high school. All the way up until I left town for good. But then I'd forgotten about him. I really had. I hadn't thought of him in years. I hadn't thought to see him at all during this trip down memory lane. 
I watched him order a beer, then lean back and study my face over the top of the bottle. He jumped right in. It's funny. I used to wonder where you ended up. I felt my cheeks flush. You did? Why? He shrugged. You were just a kid, and obviously no one was looking out for you. I knew who your parents were. I looked away. Probably every cop in town knew who my parents were. I mean, you were just trying to take care of yourself, and I was sorry that no one was helping you with that. I looked down at the countertop. I had friends, I told him. But they were kids too. There wasn't much they could do. It was definitely time to change the subject. I was visiting one of them today, in fact. Megan Peterson? I don't know if you know her. Yeah, she's married to Joe, one of the paramedics, right? Yeah, he's a real funny guy. Greg was straight-faced. I felt a reluctant grin pull at my mouth. Clearly, he did know Joe. I let out an involuntary snort of laughter and felt my shoulders relaxing a bit. Maybe this would turn out alright after all. He told me he'd enlisted straight out of high school. I'd guessed that part right, and he served four years in the Army. Then he came back home and joined the county sheriff's department while he tried to figure out what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. But then, he'd managed to knock up a girl he was dating while he was still figuring all that out. So, he stayed. First married, then divorced, but still tethered to the town by his now five-year-old son. Five years old. He winced when I asked him about Joe's cousin. Oh yeah, that was a bad day. I wasn't the one that found him, but I was there when they brought him out of the woods. I was honestly surprised that his family decided to have a party out at Lost Ladies in the first place. Most people don't do that these days. It's always had a reputation. I mean, you probably remember from growing up here. He took a long drink of his beer. A few years ago, some kids threw a graduation party at one of the pavilions, and there was a couple that went missing afterwards. Nobody was sure if they disappeared from the party or if, I don't know, maybe they went somewhere else and disappeared from there instead. But one of the kids we questioned said that she'd seen him sneaking off into the woods after midnight. We didn't find anything. They never turned up. Maybe they just took off together. I don't know. But still, it's kind of turned most people off to the park for good now. Not to change the subject, but how long are you back in town? I felt myself stiffen, and I made an effort to relax. Another week or so. He nervously stared down at the empty bottle in front of him. So this trip home, is it a one-time thing, or are you going to be coming back more often? I really don't know. That wasn't quite true. I didn't have to come back if I didn't want to, no matter how the company's presentation turned out. He sat up straight and started pulling out his wallet, then stopped, turning to face me fully. No grin this time. Do you have any plans for tomorrow? I stared at him hopelessly. 
He looked exactly like everything I'd never wanted, except that I had sort of wanted it once upon a time. But once upon a time was nearly a decade ago now. All I had to do to keep it that way was to open my mouth and say, thanks, but no thanks. Or I could even soften it with some kind of lie that I had a boyfriend back in California that I'm not looking to date right now. But instead I told him, no, I don't have plans. When he picked me up the next night, Greg asked me what I thought about driving into the city for dinner. Fancy, I said, raising my eyebrows at him, just to see that quirky grin reemerge. He was surprisingly well turned out, short dark hair neatly combed back, wearing a button-down shirt and khakis, and smelling faintly of soap and a spicy aftershave. My teenage crush had come roaring back to life. It was weirdly nostalgic. Had I so completely forgotten what a crush felt like? How long it had been since I had one? And what the hell was I thinking? He has a kid, for God's sake. I'd never even babysat as a teenager. Not for money, and not for family, not for any reason. I'd never felt equipped enough for even superficial and temporary responsibility of a child. What did I know about taking care of a kid? Yet here I was. That contradiction left me speechless, staring out Greg's passenger side window. Flat, empty countryside rolled past, broken up by the occasional herd of cattle. Home. You thought you'd got away. I set my jaw. The sharp buzz of a phone interrupted my thoughts. The dashboard screen lit up with an incoming call from Mary Ellen. Greg's shoulders visibly stiffened. He answered the call, and it came over the car speakers. Greg? A woman's voice crackled through the car. Greg, I can't- The phone connection breaking up. Get out. I heard- Greg? Greg. And then a series of sounds, half words, me, can, me, out, get out, need, Sammy, Sammy. Greg turned the hazard lights on and pulled the car over onto the shoulder. He rose his voice at the dashboard, telling her that she was breaking up. Hey, hey, I need you to go somewhere with a better signal. What about Sam? His hands tightened so hard on the wheel that his knuckles shone white through his skin. The static abruptly cut out, leaving us sitting there in silence, staring at the still active display. And then, a whisper came over the speakers. Two words. Lost. Ladies. The screen went dark. Greg exhaled hard. He said it was his ex-wife. Uh, I'm so sorry. She might have heard that I had a date. She's friends with one of the county dispatchers. She does this sometimes. I'm so sorry to ask, but Sammy's my son. We're actually pretty close to Lost Ladies here. Would you mind if we took a quick detour? The turnoff is just a few minutes back. 
I told him of course not, and I even managed to smile. It wasn't even a lie. I was starting to get desperate to rid myself of this deeply unwanted longing, a bizarre mixture of attraction and repulsion that I barely even understood. If a side trip to a haunted park in search of his kid and alcoholic ex-wife didn't kill it, nothing would. The rusted steel archway over the main parking lot entrance said, Lost Ladies. The tree line stretched out, dark and silent. Past the expanse of weedy grass dotted with pavilions, the parking lot was more potholes than asphalt. Greg found a corner and eased the car into it. Once we stood outside, he dug his phone from his back pocket and tapped the screen. A ringtone shrilled out from its speaker. Chimes echoed from the woods, slightly out of sync, faint and distant. Greg said he didn't think it was that far off and asked if I'd mind a wait. The trees loomed in the distance, casting lengthening shadows across the grass-like skeletal fingers as the sun sank lower on the horizon. The faint sound of thousands of dying leaves rustling together scraped at my nerves. No, I wasn't going to wait alone. I asked if I could come with him, and he smiled. He popped the trunk open and rummaged around, finally emerging with a couple of flashlights, one of which he handed to me. He told me to stay close. She can't be too far. I just hope she had the sense to leave Sammy at home. I trailed after him across the lot and past the pavilions into the woods. This was not a friendly, welcoming park with neat, inviting footpaths. The trees were packed tight, branches hopelessly tangled, all vanishing into the fuzzy dimness of the encroaching twilight just a few feet past the woodline. The breeze shifted, and my nose was suddenly overwhelmed with the damp, hot reek of vegetable decay. I hoped Greg knew what he was doing when he chose one of the barely visible footpaths. They all looked equally uninviting to me. The path was barely wide enough for one person. I stayed close behind him, dodging the occasional low-hanging branch and waist-high strands of thorny weeds choking the path. Something moved in the corner of my eye. I flinched, glancing quickly back over my shoulder. There was nothing there. Just a shadow from the branches swayed lazily overhead. I switched the flashlight on and Greg jumped a little. He dug his out of his back pocket and clicked it on too. We moved forward more slowly, my ears straining for any more sounds. The breeze had died again. The woods were utterly silent now, except for the rustling crunch of our passage and the faint, far-off chirping of the frogs from the distant lake. As we edged past a deadfall of lightning-struck trees, Something moved again, 
Something at the very edge of my flashlight's beam. I twisted around, sweat prickling the back of my neck. Nothing. Just the trees, the underbrush, and the shadows between them that vanished when I swept the beam across them. Get a hold of yourself, I thought. Greg started calling Mary Ellen's number every few steps. The chiming of her phone grew louder and echoed around us. And then, after we'd been walking another few minutes, the chime stopped. Maybe her battery died. He started yelling for her, for his son. Then, we heard a scream. Her voice. We could tell she was nearby. Greg stiffened, his head whipping around like a hunting dog's. He bolted off to the left. After a single frozen heartbeat, I lurched into motion behind him, struggling to keep up. Branches slapped painfully against my bare arms and legs. Seconds later, we burst into a dirt clearing, where a woman knelt in its center barely more than a silhouette in the deep shadows beneath the tree. Her head was bowed, as if in prayer. Greg shouted her name again, lunging forward. Then he tripped, landing flat on his face with an audible crunch. The wind had roared back to life with a vengeance, tree branches lashing overhead with terrifying violence. I dropped into a crouch next to him, still shocked by the sound of the impact of his head hitting the ground. A sharp crack echoed across the clearing. My head jerked up in time for me to see a huge branch tumble down the length of a tree and smash into the ground. I grabbed the flashlight and swept the beam over the center of the clearing, over the kneeling woman who had finally raised her head. She was looking straight at me. A cool shock of recognition rippled over me. I didn't know her, but I did know her. Because it could have almost been me kneeling there. Not me as I am now, but me as I might have been. If I had stayed behind instead of running as fast and as far away as plane tickets and a scholarship would carry me, our eyes locked, hers colorless in the glare of the flashlight. Her pupils reflected back at me, red like a cat's eye. Her hair was the same dull dishwater brown as mine. Her cheekbones were broad, tapering to a pointed chin, a heart-shaped face just like mine. The wind shrieked in my ears, deafening me whipping past too fast to breathe. The odd, flickering movements were back in the periphery of my vision, but every time I tried to tear my eyes away from Mary Ellen and look at the dim shadows crowding in all around me, they melted back, slipping effortlessly away. You think you start seeing things out of the corner of your eye, but when you look at them, they vanish. But every time you look away, they get closer and closer. 
Mary Ellen's eyes were darting all around the clearing. Could she see the shadows too? Her head shook frantically, back and forth, harder and harder. Then she flung her head back and screamed again. I recalled the flashlight sweeping down from her face to her lap, and for the first time, I saw that she hadn't come alone into the woods. Her arms were tight around a small form, a form with hair that shone bright gold where the flashlight's beams hit it. I swept the flashlight back up to Mary Ellen's face, and our eyes met once more. And I realized how slack her face had been before, because it wasn't now. It was clenched up like a fist, like a woman seized by rapture, a martyr's conviction. She lurched to her feet, staggering under her son's weight. Then, the physical shock of her barreling straight into me forced a huge gasping gulp of air into my lungs. My arms clamped around the limp heavyweight she'd shoved into them. She staggered back away from me, her glare jerking from one side of the clearing to the other. She shouted at me to get away from them, to follow her. She ran, heading for the far end of the clearing. She started waving her arms over her head. She yelled, This way, you fuckers. She crashed away into the woods, branches snapping. Suddenly, I could hear again as the wind died down in her wake. The ugly, crowding darkness obscuring my vision melted away between one heartbeat and the next. Just beyond me, I could see Greg struggling, clutching at a tree trunk, dark blood running down the side of his face. The kid in my arms was unconscious, but not dead. I could feel the rise and fall of his ribcage against my arm. I grabbed Greg's sleeve and hauled him the rest of the way upright. Greg recovered enough after a few hundred feet to take the lead, which was a good thing, as every direction looked the same to me. All I could hear was the furious hammering of my own pulse in my ears. We burst out of the woods and staggered across the grass towards the parking lot. My legs were shaking so badly by the time we reached the car that I had to lean against it while Greg unlocked the door. I tried to hand him his son, but he shook his head. Then he eased us into the front seat, buckling us in together. The car started smoothly, almost noiselessly. I had half expected it not to start at all. All Greg said was, hospital, and then he floored it. We sped onto the highway, faster than I'd ever gone in any car in my life. I couldn't see any visible injuries on the kid. No one could have possibly slept normally through what had just happened. As soon as we were a few miles down the road, Greg leaned over and dug something out of the glove compartment. A police radio. Greg's voice was hoarse and exhausted as he spoke into it. He said things like, my ex-wife and lost ladies, and our son ran off into the woods. I looked down at Sammy, 
His head was tucked snugly against my chest. His mouth was hanging open slightly. Children coped in a variety of ways with horrible experiences. The things that adults did around them, to them. I knew that better than anyone. He twitched in my arms and I tightened them around him. Now that I was really looking at him, I couldn't seem to stop. He was a beautiful child, with tangled fair curls and a halo around his head, and long dark lashes resting on his pale cheeks. However it was that they'd both ended up so deep in the woods. She might have heard that I had a date. She's friends with one of the county dispatchers. Had she looked at Greg all those years ago and seen a way out of whatever personal hell her life had deteriorated into? Stuck in this town, she took the same way out that Megan had, a way that I'd never been given the opportunity to take. I'd found a different way out instead. I'd always loved school. I had taken the nerdy job. Likely, nobody had ever thought that about Mary Ellen, least of all herself. Greg's entry into her life must have seemed like salvation to her. Whether or not the eventual pregnancy that tied them together had been planned or not. But whatever she'd meant to accomplish by losing herself and Sammy in the woods tonight, in the end, she had truly loved her son more than she'd loved herself. More than either one of my parents had ever loved me. Sammy's face blurred and swam, and I squeezed my eyes shut, but the tears escaped anyway, burning my face. Something brushed my leg. I pried my eyes open and looked down. It was Greg's hand, resting lightly on my knee. I thought of how he'd flung himself into the woods after Mary Ellen, who had given him a lot of reasons not to love her, and the way he'd held me and Sammy so tightly against him. The way he was calling in a rescue team to look for Mary Ellen, even though it was impossible to imagine that he wouldn't be looked at with suspicion, that nobody would try to fix any blame on him for whatever it was they found. He would be easy to love if I had been in the way of loving anyone. The last person I'd loved in my entire life might have been Megan. I almost couldn't remember loving my parents at all. Why do you think people have funerals? If you don't take care of the dead the right way, their spirits get angry. And instead of going to heaven like they're supposed to, they hang around and harass the living. Did Greg see any of it? Had Greg seen what Mary Ellen and I saw, or had he been knocked out too quickly? Had it just been Mary Ellen and I alone in the woods? With what? What happens to the dead when you don't take care of them the right way? What happens to the living when you don't? A faint glow caught my eye to the east. It couldn't be morning already, no matter how long the night had felt. 
It was the city lights, out on the horizon, drawing closer as Greg's car drove on the highway. Light. Maybe it was time I did start trying to love again. Somebody or something. Maybe I'd been hiding in the darkness too long. I closed my eyes as tears rushed down my face. And I kissed the top of Sammy's little head. Thanks for joining us for this episode of 13. If you like what you heard, stop what you're doing and leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This month's story was Lost Ladies, written by Lisa Short, narrated by Bridget Howard. Mary Ellen was Liz Walker. Greg was Ian Epperson. Editing and sound design by Liz Walker. Music by Caleb Ritchie. Assistance from Brooke Jeanette. Our producer-level patrons are Rick Linville, Tattooed Fox, Rhiannon, Sean Geary, Anthony Diaz, Paul Doyle, Delta Tango, Jackie Kay, Jack Chaddock, and Temple Ruff. Thank you so much for your support. Our patrons get access to an exclusive Discord channel to chat with the creators and a second monthly reading. Merch, bloopers, behind-the-scenes content, and weekly updates on the show. We're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at some version of 13pod or pod13. Just look for the logo. We'll have links in the show notes. If you'd like to submit a story to be performed on the show or contact us about anything else, get in touch at info at 13podcast.com. You can find it in the show notes. Stay tuned for a trailer for The Lucky Die. Bridget Howard is taking a walk in the woods. Thanks for listening. See you next month. You see, looking up from the ground, blood-red clouds boiling across the sky. You did ask me to bring the thunder. (laughs) Agent! Agent! Help! I've got the chalice! Please! Well, if they're following you, then I guess that takes care of a loose end for me. (laughs) All of you feel the earth beneath you shake and crack and break. I feel that I have failed both of you. And I am sorry for that. This has nothing to do with you being a bad leader. Do you want a countdown? Oh, I think I want a countdown. I want to help. I always had good intentions. I did not deserve to die. Now. The Lucky Die Podcast is a weekly 5e Dungeons & Dragons actual play podcast. Join our adventure every Monday wherever you download podcasts by searching for The Lucky Die.